This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. The couple is under fire regarding the disappearance of their teen daughter, Erica, whom they haven't seen for two years. Investigators are onto them. In addition to getting caught telling multiple lies about their adopted daughter's whereabouts, they have now been sentenced to time behind bars for financial fraud. Still, there had been no real justice for Erica Parsons. But just when it seemed like this would become yet another cold case, a file left dusty and long forgotten on a backroom shelf, there was a major break. Someone was about to finally tell detectives the truth about where she was after all this time and pay the price for what they had done. That's all coming up next on The Conclusion of Little Girl Lost, the case of Erica Parsons, Mystery and Murder, analysis by Dr. Phil. I'm Dr. Phil. My Bessie Stormburst low top and weekend sneakers empower my summer adventures. Now, I went to New York last week because I had to do a press tour, and I was prepared to embrace the summer season to its fullest, no matter what it threw my way weather-wise. And I'd been going from interview to interview, like seriously, 15, 20 during the day. And then I went to a dinner with clients. I knew that in the middle of that dinner, I had to do one more really key interview. And in order to do it, I had to leave the middle of that dinner and that noisy restaurant for about 10 or 15 minutes. And sure enough, I got to the door to step outside where it was quiet, and it was raining cats and dogs. But I had on my Vessie Stormburst, so I was able to go through all of that water on the sidewalk, across the street, to get into my car so I could do the interview in the quiet. You want to stay prepared. Join us now and let us make the summer one for the books. Seize the sun-kissed days and thrilling escapades at Vessie.com mystery for shoes that masterfully combine waterproof protection with urban elegance. Start your journey with Vessie and get an automatic 15% off your first order at checkout. The first page of a book never tells the full story. And those news alerts and headlines, like the ones we get on our phones, don't even scratch the surface of what the story is really all about. Stories are like people, multi-layered and complex. It takes some digging to find the truth, but when we find it, it can change our world. We like to dig. The news on Merritt Street. Essential television. It was now 2016. Five years had passed since Erica had last been seen, and it had been three years since anyone outside the Parsons household had even known to start looking for her. 
police knew that Casey and Sandy Parsons, along with the rest of Erica's adoptive family, had brutally abused her while she lived with him. During their fraud trial, their horrible mistreatment of her had come to light. This is why even after these two were sentenced, Sandy to 10 years, Casey to 8, investigators knew to keep their eye on them, to keep interrogating them in hopes that they would provide some clue or eventually crack. The clues added up. The physical abuse. Sandy's failed polygraph when he appeared on my program. The fake grandmother. But although detectives had scoured their property and collected evidence, including Erica's DNA from a closet where she had often been locked and punished, and the FBI had pursued the couple's fraud, there was still nothing actually leading to the missing girl. Now, the very term cold case has a negative connotation. It requires new investigators to go back through old reports, track down people who may have moved or forgotten details. Remember, this case started out cold and had only gotten colder. She had already been missing for two years when their son came in and reported they had killed her and buried her in the backyard. Now, he recanted that quite soon, but still, he came in and outed them to the police. There are so many disappearance cases that seem to come to a dead end. Some are revived and solved, and some fascinate the public for years. Take, for example, the case of Mara Murray a nursing student who went missing after a car crash in rural New Hampshire in 2004 and hasn't been seen since. These types of cases enthrall the media and armchair detectives alike because it's like trying to fit pieces of a puzzle together. This case was different in that the two culprits seemed to just be getting away with it. It was like everyone knew it, but nobody could prove it. By now, it was known nationwide that this girl had suffered immensely at their hands before she vanished. In this instance, police are fortunate that the Parsons are locked up. They can't go anywhere. They can't flee the state or the country and hide. A new FBI report looked at 2017 crime and arrest data from 16,000 law enforcement agencies across the country and determined that 40% of reported murders were not cleared at all. That means that 40% of those that had been murdered never found justice. Was this going to be one of those cases? Had she been murdered? And were the Parsons guilty and going to get away with it? Like we talked about in our last episode, it was easy to see that Sandy was the weak link in the Parsons duo. He was the one who had taken up my offer on a polygraph exam and failed to pass. While Casey had refused, 
It was evident that he was more comfortable taking a back seat and letting her do the talking for him. Casey never surrendered when she was confronted about her mistruths. I knew this because I had experienced her attempts at deception firsthand, and she controlled Sandy like a ventriloquist controls their dummy. As long as she wasn't talking, it seemed like neither would her husband. But now the tide had turned. The Parsons were now serving prison sentences separately. Sandy no longer had someone to parrot and take orders from. But he was still the same weak man, only now investigators were going to use this weakness to their advantage. While in federal prison in Durham, Sandy finally admitted to investigators to what he and Casey had done. He no longer had her psychological support or domination. And when isolated, he seemed to be breaking down. This all began once he was separated from Casey. After years of remaining mum, he suddenly got loose lips. Allegedly, that July, he bragged to a family member that he was going to try to work out a deal with prosecutors in exchange for revealing Erica's whereabouts. He also allegedly told this family member that Erica was indeed dead and concealed in a place so remote that investigators would not be able to ever locate her without his help. A spot so secret that not even hunters, campers, or hikers would find her. He knew he had information detectives wanted, and he wasn't totally forthcoming right away. Still, he had opened up a line of communication with officers, and that was more than they had had in years. Around the same time, one of Erica's other aunts hired an independent investigator and bounty hunter, David Marshburn. They hired him to help them with their quest to find Erica. His track record was impressive. He had worked as a private investigator on a well-known missing persons case of Kelly Bordeaux, a combat medic who had disappeared in Fort Bragg, North Carolina. P.I. Marshburn had not only convinced the perpetrator, a jealous man she had rejected, to confess to the crime, but also into leading him to her body in the woods. So this was not a man who gave up easily. He went back through the evidence and began to get new leads. When Casey first spoke with law enforcement about Erica's whereabouts in 2013, she told them she was staying with her nan in a white house with two chimneys, a long front porch and a pasture with horses. That's essentially the same story she told me. So Marshburn looked into this and found it interesting that there was a house just like this near Pageland, South Carolina. And the house just happened to be where Sandy Parsons' mother lived. It was almost identical to Casey's description. The only difference was that this house was brown, not white. Sandy Parsons' father confirmed that Casey had once told him that the house would be prettier if he painted it white. So it seems like Casey, a woman who had a history of fabricating stories to get her way, couldn't resist lying about the color of the house, 
making it the one she preferred. The area surrounding the house was indeed remote. The PI tried to search the land, but scattered timber made the search very difficult. Still, he reported this lead to authorities, and they would soon find he was right on the money. Did Sandy ultimately confess to the murder of Erica Parsons because he felt immense guilt or because he hoped for a plea deal? We'll never know for sure. But what we do know is that on September 27th of 2016, five years after Erica was last seen, Sandy, handcuffed and flanked by police officers, led them to a remote area in Pageland, South Carolina, not far from his parents' house. He led them to an area on a lonely landscape of red clay soil, a well-known terrain in the Carolinas. When Sandy stepped away and was led back to the police car, he was crying. Within 20 minutes of digging, they found bones. Exhuming the skeleton and processing the burial scene took 10 hours. Investigators had a hunch that this was in fact Erica because one of the skeletal arms exhibited a bone fracture that hadn't healed properly. This match was one of the many terrible injuries she had endured once when the Parsons had roughly grabbed her arm, causing her to scream. They created a makeshift cast for her rather than getting her medical attention. Soon after agents from the North Carolina Bureau of Investigation and the FBI extracted the tiny skeleton, the North Carolina Medical Examiner's Office confirmed that it was, in fact, Erica. She had never lived in a lovely house with a homey porch and a pasture outside. She had been lying in a shallow grave for all these years, so close, but yet so far from the idyllic home Casey had so often described. Finally, the relatives who yearned to learn what had happened to this little girl had their answers. It was painful, but at least they had answers. This child, who had spent so much of her life suffering, was finally given a beautiful funeral service. She was laid to rest in a beautiful white coffin adorned with pink roses. A choir sang. While she was alive, when she wasn't enduring abuse, she was left alone. Now, the pews were filled with mourners grieving and celebrating her. When the medical examiner released their report, it was horrifying but it was also one of the last pieces of the puzzle investigators needed to apprehend Casey and Sandy. Not for fraud, not for cashing in on this little girl's life, but to pay for her death. The results of her autopsy revealed what she had been through. They knew about the abuse, 
The investigators had already learned that. But it was another thing to see on paper the extent of her mistreatment. The medical examiner found evidence of malnutrition. The ME reported that she had low mineral bone density and a growth deficit. We know that the Parsons used food as a form of punishment with Erica. They had often forced her to eat dog food or give her no food at all, so much so that her growth was stunted. They found multiple fractures on her body, including her ribs, mandible, bilateral scapula, and four vertebrae. Her injuries were all in various stages of healing, which makes sense in this case, sadly. When someone is constantly being severely abused, their injuries will heal at different rates, and they occur across time. These, the fractures documented at autopsy, are consistent with multiple blunt force injuries over a prolonged period, wrote the medical examiner. Erica's alarmingly horrible physical state left investigators unable to pinpoint an exact cause of death. There were so many possibilities. Prior to her death, she was said to have exhibited sunken eyes, ashen skin, and difficulty breathing. This description paired with her chronic abuse led examiners to believe she could have suffered from renal failure some sort of untreated infection, poisoning, or even sepsis. She urgently needed medical care. They ultimately ruled her death as, quote, homicidal violence of undetermined means. Their findings could not exclude the possibility of terminal blunt force injury, suffocation, or strangulation. It's hard to imagine an innocent little girl voluntarily taken in by a family only to be beaten and abused so horrifically that they couldn't tell which of the injuries might have ended her life. On February 18, 2018, the Parsons were charged with first-degree murder, felony child abuse, obstruction of justice, and felony concealment of a case in connection with the death of Erica Parsons. Casey pled guilty in August of that year. The woman who had once had so much to say without much of it being true was now quiet and disheveled. She had finally been stripped of her power. Why? because nobody gave a damn what she had to say. The findings spoke clearly enough. The prosecutor provided a timeline with details about how Casey tried to keep Erica's abuse a secret from their extended family. It's frustrating to hear that while relatives highly suspected or knew about the abuse, Erica was ultimately allowed to remain in their care. The courtroom was solemn as the prosecutor detailed the ordeal she had gone through prior to her death. It wasn't enough that she had been killed. She had been tortured across years before 
being killed. The week before Erica's disappearance in 2011, her beatings were allegedly at their worst. During that last week of her life, her adoptive brother Jamie stated that her face was pale white. He said she looked so unwell she reminded him of a zombie. She could barely stand, and when she told Casey that she couldn't breathe, she was told to shut the F up and go back in the corner. That's enough to make you sick, but there's more. The prosecutor read aloud part of Sandy's confession. Here it is. The last time I saw Erica alive was on December the 16th of 2011. I knew something wasn't right. On December 17th of 2011, Erica was in the closet at the end of the hall. Erica lived in this closet. Erica kept peeing in the floor, so I put a shower board down on the floor. Casey told me that Erica had died. Casey said Erica committed suicide with pills. Before I woke up, Casey had already put Erica's body inside two plastic trash bags inside a plastic tote. I went in this room on December the 18th, 2011, and moved Erica, who was already inside the tote, and placed her under other totes so the kids didn't find her. Erica stayed here until the night of December 19th of 2011. I told Casey we had to do something. On the 19th, Casey and me left and drove out of the county and I dug a hole. I carried Erica still inside the plastic tote out the French doors and put her inside the truck of the car. I asked Casey why Erica didn't stink and she said she poured bleach all over her. We drove to the location of the grave I dug. I carried the tote with Erica inside and placed it beside the grave. Casey took Erica out of the tote and took her clothes off and placed her inside the grave. Then they drove away, spedding off into the night to go to a local gas station to dispose of Erica's clothes and the bag they had carried her lifeless body in. During all of this, Casey remained expressionless. Here's what she had to say when she was given the chance to speak. I can't tell you why. I don't know why I did the stuff I did. I'm sorry, sorry. But God gave me a precious gift, a baby girl, Erica, and he entrusted me to take care of her. And I failed him and I failed Erica. I failed her horribly. My parents and my sister reached out to me numerous times to help me. Numerous. Um, I pushed them back. I would lie constantly to them. And they would try over and over again. And I want to say I'm sorry to God and to Erica. Notice that in that statement she made and in Sandy's confession, neither of them ever said how they specifically killed the little girl. She even told her own husband that the child had committed suicide by taking pills. There's no one this woman won't lie to. To think of her pouring bleach on this deceased child to conceal her smell for days? Everything about this from start to finish goes against any kind of human compassion, any kind of empathy, any kind of humanity. 
It also reinforces that this wasn't a crime committed in the heat of the moment. She was methodical and intent on making sure she didn't get caught and had no sense of remorse, no feeling whatsoever for what she was putting this human being through. Not only that, but she doesn't own the full truth in this statement either. She doesn't have the courage to tell the court that she was a child abuser, that she was a monster to this little girl. Even when she's finally accepting responsibility for Erica's death, all she can say is that she failed her. Failing her is a passive thing. Abusing her is an active thing. Yes, she did fail her as a parent in every way possible, but she actively tortured and murdered her, yet she never uttered those words. She did not own what she did as a monstrous human being. The judge sentenced Casey to life in prison without the possibility of parole, as well as additional consecutive sentences totaling approximately 23 years. Outside the courtroom, Erica's biological mother, Carolyn, expressed her gratitude. She didn't want Casey to get the death penalty. She thought that spending the rest of her life in prison was a better form of punishment. She told reporters of Casey, quote, She has no soul. She is a body that is just there. She was also elated that Casey would never again be able to be around any children, not even her own grandchildren. A heavy weight had been lifted from her. Sandy was tried separately, and his trial was next. While initially charged with murder in the first degree, he ultimately pleaded guilty to second-degree murder and child abuse. His lawyers emphasized that Casey was the manipulative mastermind and that Sandy was merely acting on her wishes. Here is his statement given during his hearing. People may forgive me. I know God has. But I'll never forgive myself. I turn a blind eye things Eric was going through. And I failed her as a dad. Again, in my opinion, it's not enough for him to say he failed her as a dad. I'm sorry. I think that is sliding. He physically harmed that child as well. He admitted to police that he would hit her with his belt until she bled. Until she bled. He knew she was sick, and then he helped his wife cover up the child's murder. Nonetheless, the defense requested leniency from the judge. Instead of the 80 years behind bars he could have received, the judge sentenced him to a maximum of 43 years. At 46 years old when sentenced, it's likely that Sandy will spend the remainder of his life in prison. First-degree murder, which is what Casey was charged with and pled guilty to, says a murder was willful and premeditated. Second-degree murder, Sandy's charge, is an intentional murder or someone meaning to cause harm but without premeditation. To me, that's a sellout. Don't tell me he didn't have forethought here. 
Many of Erica's relatives, including her mother, were upset that Sandy's charge was downgraded to murder in the second degree. They found him just as culpable as his wife. In my opinion, they're correct. However, Sandy had been the one to lead investigators to Erica's body. I doubt Casey ever planned on doing that. As despicable as he is, the one good thing he did was finally telling them where she was. Now Erica has been laid to rest. Those guilty for her murder will never be free again. But the lingering question remains, why? Obviously, there's no rational reason or excuse for why the Parsons did what they did to Erica. As Casey said herself, their outside family offered to help. Social workers came to investigate on two occasions, and yet their behavior did not stop. It only escalated. With family members offering to help and social workers coming to investigate, if they did not want the child, if it was too much of a burden, they could have surrendered the child. But remember, they were cashing in. This child was a meal ticket. As long as they could continue to claim taking care of the child, they were getting money. That's how cold and mercenary these people were. They could resent her being there. They could resent having to even deal with her presence but they were getting money for it so they could vent their resentment but still get paid. Now, I've worked with people suffering all different kinds of abuse, domestic abuse, child abuse, parental abuse, physical, emotional, mental, and I can tell you it's a terrible, terrible thing. I'm committed to this cause. It's why I work with my wife, Robin, on our foundation, When Georgia Smiled, which aids victims of domestic abuse, to get them away from these abusers. I've always said that one major definition of abuse that you find in every state, and certainly in the federal code, is failure of a parent to keep a child out of harm's way. Sandy both abused her and did not stop Casey from abusing her. This was a house with two adults and a teenage son, and they were all accepting and taking part in this inhumane behavior. They knew it was wrong because they concealed it. There are certain factors that can cause an adult to abuse a child. It never excuses it, but it drives them to do it. And these are sick people that need help but never got it. Were they abused as children? Maybe so. That's a reason, not an excuse. People often say abusers were abused. That does not explain it. They singled out this child to live a life of servitude. She was beaten, put outside in the blistering sun with no shoes, kept in a closet, deprived of food. 
they had the ability not to do this because they didn't do it to their biological children. That tells you they had the capacity to control themselves. This became all about self-indulgence. This became all about the money. And the dysfunction trickles down. In 2018, Erica's adoptive brother, Jamie, the one who also abused her and reported her disappearance, would be arrested on charges of felony bigamy. So in the end, Erica's been found and her adoptive parents have been held accountable, but that doesn't fill the void left behind. Her mother, Carolyn, said it best in her gut-wrenching impact statement. Thank you to everybody who has had part in this. I gave Erica for what I thought would have been a better life. What I thought was best for her because I didn't have a steady home. I didn't have a steady job. Had I known then what I know now, I would have risked it. I would have took her different places every night. This has changed how I feel about the word family. I'll never love the same again. I'll surely never, ever trust the same again. Erica's child abuse was nine times ten in case insane knew I was abused as a child. My daughter lived my life, but ten times worse. No child deserves that. I was more than willing to take her back. She had options. She had me, she had Robin. She had other options. I gave her a gift. I gave her a gift that millions of people would love to receive to his family. Erica was my child. Trusting and believing in family. Look where I am now. I just want to know why. This was a tragic story of what happens when a child isn't rescued, when they're left in the hands of monsters and no knight in shining armor comes to save them. For Carolyn and the rest of the family, the heartbreaking loss will always remain. But now the world knows the name of this child who once disappeared, the girl whose photo shows a sweet young face beaming with promise. Her name was Erica Parsons, and she was loved. You've been listening to Little Girl Lost, Mystery and Murder, Analysis by Dr. Phil. I'm Dr. Phil.